evening, everyone. My name is Stephanie Bowers, and I'm the Human Rights Coordinator and Equity Director for the City of Iowa City. And I would like to welcome everyone to Ripples of Hope, From Despair to Advocacy for the Social Injustice Too Few People Are Even Aware Of, being presented by Leslie Carpenter. Leslie is a NAMI Johnson County board member. She teaches family to family and provider trainings. And Leslie and her husband, Scott, have become advocates for people living with serious brain disorder at the local, state, and federal levels, and co-founded the Iowa Mental Health Advocacy. Leslie and Scott were also recipients of the City of Iowa City's Human Rights Awards this past fall. So with that, I will turn it over to Leslie. And thank you, Leslie. Thank you. Thank you so much to everyone for coming and attending tonight. And thank you for allowing me to come and share our story with you tonight. I'm going to go ahead and share our screen. There we go. Can everybody see that okay? Okay, great. Thank you. So um, I title our advocacy talks that we do Ripples of Hope, and I always start off with this slide. Um, and this is looking at where the St. Lawrence River in northern New York meets up with Lake Ontario. And it's very close to where I grew up, and I spent a lot of my childhood on the St. Lawrence River. And in the early morning, before the wind really picks up, what you will begin to see on water like this are little ripples. And I tend to think of each talk, each act of advocacy that we do as a little ripple of hope, because sometimes what we do adds up to what a lot of other people are doing to help make change, especially for things like social injustice. And I like to make it clear very much that I am not a mental health professional. Um, I, in fact, had a wonderful career as a physical therapist, but retired in October of 2019 early um, because I wanted to be able to work on fixing the mental health system while I was still young enough to have the energy to do so. Um, I do still teach with the University of Iowa's graduate program, um, graduate PT program, and I am a member of NAMI Johnson County and do a lot of teaching with them with family to family program, um, provider teaching, and then end the silence uh, presenting. Um, and then when my husband and I started working on um, changing some laws in the state of Iowa, we formed uh, Iowa Mental Health Advocacy, which is essentially it's just a website where we could house information for legislators to be able to refer to. And now I am actually a lobbyist at the Iowa legislature, but don't be too impressed because I'm doing that on a volunteer basis. <laughs> um, and the reason we've worked into the world of advocacy um, begins with our story of our children. We have two adult children and our daughter is healthy and doing well, um, but our son is not. And he started out as a pretty happy, healthy, normal little baby who as a newborn, you can see he had some jaundice and but that was about the only complication for him is that he had to go back in for some a few days underneath the lights for his bilirubin. And through his childhood, he grew up just like every other kid, um, being creative, athletic, funny. His little sister adored him, played years and years of baseball. But this picture here to the far right is the last picture we have of him before he got sick. And actually that's right before a semi-formal dance over at West High. And that at the time was his girlfriend. And then things started to change. And at first we really thought we were dealing with rebellion, the typical teenage rebellion. But pretty soon we started discovering that no, that wasn't it, he was sick. And not only was he sick, he was really, really sick. And this is a self-portrait he drew at the time. And we saw, and you can see he had kind of drawn out the happiness from his eyes. But this drawing that we found many years later, hidden in a sketch pad, is probably much more reflective of his experience at the onset of his brain illness. And he had a pretty classic progression of the disease for someone who develops a serious brain illness. In 2008, he was in high school and he called me from school one afternoon and said, mom, I'm not feeling well, I need to go home. And he was driving at the time. And so I said, okay, 
by all means, please go home. And I hung up the phone and realized there had been something different in his voice. And I got someone else to take over seeing my patients and I drove home and I found him upstairs in his bedroom. And over on his desk was our family's largest carving knife. And I looked at that and I looked at him and I said, what are you doing with this knife in your room? And at first he tried to say, hey, I was gonna make a sandwich, but we don't really make sandwiches with that kind of a knife and there was no bread, no peanut butter. So I um, asked him again, seriously, what are you doing with this knife here? And he said, well, I was thinking about killing myself today, mom. And that was the moment, the moment that we went from the wonderful before to the really horrible after. And we obviously sprang into action and worked to get him care. Um, and he was admitted to the hospital and they found out that he'd been self-medicating for some time with marijuana. And honestly, at first they all thought that that was primary and so did we. And so we got him treatment for that addiction and for the depression and anxiety. And he actually ended up finishing up high school in rehab over in uh, Rockford, Illinois. Um, because we figured out pretty quickly that in a college town, a young, charismatic soul, teenager, can easily get their hands on marijuana, even when they don't have any money. Um, and he graduated high school and he came back and he worked for systems, actually, um, helping to take care of people in group homes. And then he ultimately got enrolled at Kirkwood Community College up in Cedar Rapids and was doing pretty well until one late January night, he called in the middle of the night and said, Mom, I've just died, but don't worry because I've come back to life and I'm God and I need you to come get me right now. I need you to come get me and take me to go see Obama and Oprah so I can save the world. And so I climbed out of bed and drove up and picked him up and his backpack and his kitten that he had adopted from somewhere and brought him home and somehow got him to bed and hoped that he would wake up in the morning better, right? hoped he'd taken some other kind of drug that I didn't know about and understand. But in the morning, it was very apparent he was still pacing, still insisting we head to Washington, D.C. And it was before mobile crisis, so we called the Johnson County Sheriff and got their assistance to get him to the hospital. And they admitted him and diagnosed him with his first manic psychosis and a bipolar type 1. And at the time, that made perfect sense. And the medication helped. A couple years later, though, his illness evolved even further and he began hearing voices and having very altered beliefs and persistent delusions, um, even while taking his meds. Um, and so he was diagnosed with schizoaffective disorder, which sometimes people think is less serious than schizophrenia. And I'm here to tell you it's not, it's worse um, because it combines both the voices and delusions of schizophrenia and bipolar disorder, which is not happy and sad. There's a lot of people that think that it is manic psychosis and depression. And so it's very difficult to treat. And because of that, over the past 13 years, he's been hospitalized 23 times. He's been in five different drug rehab programs. He's been in three different residential care facilities. And at one of those, he stopped taking his meds because sometimes you're, this brain disease fools people into thinking that they are not sick or knowing that they are not sick and that those meds are poison. And because he was an adult, they let him stop taking those meds. And he went back into another psychosis and had to wait for six weeks there in a psychosis for a bed to open up at the MHI so that he could get stabilized again. He's also lived in four different group homes and he's tried to live in the community, um, in our home and in our apartment. Um, but for somebody as sick as our son, community services just are not enough to help keep him well. And I share the picture of the brains here because I want people to understand that because of how broken our system is and because we don't keep people in the hospital long enough to stabilize them, people that are getting sick with serious brain disorders like schizophrenia are becoming much more sick than they have to and than they used to. Back in the 70s when people could stay in the hospital for a longer period of time and truly stabilize and become aware of their illnesses, they didn't get quite as sick as they do now. And through all this time, people kept saying, you and Scott need to get to NAMI. And this was my response because we were both working full time. We were trying to help take care of our son. We were visiting him every day after work if he wasn't here with us. We were trying to keep our daughter's life normal. 
But ultimately I decided we had to go and I'm ever so grateful that I did. I, we went to take the family to family class, which was for me a transformative thing. Um, it helped me to process my grief over losing our son to this illness. It helped me to learn to let go and by that, I do not mean give up because we still advocate every single day for our son. But what I mean is letting go of feeling solely responsible for his ultimate outcome. Because let's face it, it's likely not going to be very good. But if that should happen, it will not be because of something that we didn't learn, something we didn't research, something we didn't beg for. And trust me, we've done a lot of begging. Um, it will be because of how broken the system is and because of how serious his illness is. And the night that really uh, impacted me was when they shared a talk that Pete Early, who's a Washington Post journalist who also has a son with a serious mental illness, he did a talk at Englert, uh, the Englert Theater many years ago and they recorded it and they shared it with us. And it was an extremely cathartic experience for me to listen to his talk because it enraged me and it made me cry. Um, huge, terrible, sobbing tears. But it enraged me when I began to understand the breadth of the mental health crisis in our country and all of the reasons that have led to it. Um, and it helped me to realize that there's a huge need for advocacy, not just for our son, but for the other 10 to 11 million people living with illnesses like he has. And I always share this picture to kind of explain what it was like for us before NAMI. Um, I very much felt like a shell of myself. This was the first problem in life I hadn't been able to solve. We couldn't fix our son. And this is a famous statue of a grieving parent or a grieving spouse. Um, and I think it's pretty accurate in terms of what it looks like. And we mostly could advocate just for our son. And as he would come out of a psychosis, he would start to return to his baseline personality, which was much more altruistic. Um, not as egocentric as thinking he's God, right? And what he would do is ask me to bring snickerdoodles, his favorite cookie. And so I would bake batches and batches and batches of snickerdoodles, not for him to eat, but for him to give to all the other patients in the psychiatric units, because he could look around him and see all that sadness and all that suffering. And he wanted to help them and give them something to enjoy. And then after coming to NAMI, eventually I became an advocate and now probably am much more so an activist. And initially I kind of resisted against being defined that way, but once I read this definition, yeah, this is who I am now. I, I don't need any power, I don't need any money, but what I do need to do is fix things. I'm compelled to work on this injustice and this cruelty and this unfairness that we witnessed. And we first started out with some pretty naive initial advocacy goals that we shared with the folks at NAMI. And my husband really wanted to change the admission process through the university hospital here in Iowa City. Um, and I really wanted to change the admission criteria for psychiatric hospitalization. And I still do. I think it's absolutely sinful and terrible that we have to let somebody get so sick that they become dangerous to themselves or others before we will step in and offer them help. That's not the best time to treat this brain and it's not the best way that we would treat a heart. We would never let a heart die 99% of the way before we step in. And I really wanna add more treatment beds and facilities. So some of these goals are ongoing. And we shared them with NAM, the NAMI folks at first and this is kind of how I felt like the response was. And Honestly, I'm sure that some of them were thinking, well, Les, don't you think we've been working on this for decades? And of course they had been, right? And the other part probably was, well, who do you think you are? You're a person that's just barely functioning right now. And yet, Patty Henderson, one of our family of family teachers down here in this lower right-hand picture, she set up a meeting for my husband, Scott, and I and her to meet with the ED medical director at the university hospitals. Um, in 2015. And we met with him and shared some of the experiences we'd had with our son that were pretty traumatic for him and for us. 
And we shared some models of things that we had read about in, in other parts of the country that we thought might be something they could consider. And honestly, we walked away and felt like, okay, that went nowhere. And we never ever heard another word from him, sadly. And yet three years later, the university opened the crisis stabilization unit. Now, I always like to make it very clear. My husband and I and Patty did none of the work to make this happen, right? It was the university folks that did this and did all the planning and all the work. But I do like to think that maybe, perhaps, we were one little ripple, one little family voice that helped to urge them forward to making some changes. And it's been successful. Um, this is some data they shared with me shortly after, just a few months in but it did reduce ED boarding time for people for psychiatric care. It reduced the number of people thrown into the back of a sheriff's car and transported across the state to find an available bed. And it reduced the number of admissions actually because many of the people could be stabilized with a few days in a stabilization unit and didn't need a full psychiatric inpatient stay. A couple of years later, in 2017, I had kind of gotten disgusted with the conversations that would occur after a mass gun violence situation where some of the people would call for sensible gun legislation, but many of the politicians would say, no, we need to fix the mental illness problem. And I wrote an essay um, to basically unpack that conversation and help explain that actually people that are treated for their mental illnesses are no more violent than you or I, number one but that sometimes people that are untreated because of how broken the system is do commit some crimes and some violence. It's only one to 5% of the gun violence, just so folks know that. But because that does happen, I offered some suggestions for things that we could do to improve the mental illness treatment system here. And on the day that it was published, my phone blew up from people from all over the country. But the most important person who called me was Betsy Johnson from the Treatment Advocacy Center. And she said, Leslie, would you like to help us improve Iowa's commitment law? And I said, heck yeah, I'd love to do that. And so we did. Um, my husband and I met with Senator Joe Bochum, who was the closest legislator to us here, um, who served on the HR committee in the Senate. And he wrote a bill and we somehow got it attached to the big complex needs law that was bill that was passing with a lot of political momentum that year. And it was attached to that and she signed it into law back in March of 2018. And it includes what our portion of that was. But I'm going to switch gears here for a moment and share a little bit about the history of the mental health crisis because I don't know as if a lot of folks know about this. Back in the 40s and 50s and 60s, there were way too many people being put in state-run mental health institutions across our country. And they were too big, too easy to put people there. It could even be an angry husband um, putting his wife there even if she didn't have a mental illness. And they were massively underfunded and understaffed and horrible atrocities were occurring. So with really good intentions, John F. Kennedy signed the Community Mental Health Act in 1963. At the time, Thorazine had come on the market and they really thought that it was gonna be a magical cure for schizophrenia. And they really believed that if they could bring everybody out of these institutions and bring them to community mental health centers to be near their families, they would be better off. But ever so sadly, he was killed within about a month of signing that, and they never did outfit all of these community mental health centers around the country. A couple of years later, um, the Vietnam War had been going on, and so the federal budget was shrinking. And so LBJ, again, with really good intentions, signed the Medicaid Act of 1965. And I'd like everybody to pause and realize that I'm talking about 1963 and 1965. This has been going on for decades. He signed that act and it included the IMD exclusion. And IMD stands for Institutes of Mental Diseases. And what that does is it prevents federal matching Medicaid dollars from being used for any psychiatric facility that has more than 16 beds dedicated for someone with a mental disease. And that included both mental illnesses and intellectual deficits. They basically thought, well, if we keep everything smaller, we can avoid atrocities. Again, good intentions. But what really happened? Well, back in 1955, 
There were 558,000 beds across the country, state mental health institution beds, and that was too many. But now we only have 38,000 all across the country. And per the Treatment Advocacy Center, that's about 123,000 too few. And in Iowa, for anybody that doesn't realize this, we are ranked 51st in the country, dead last, because we only have 64 adult state beds and 32 child state beds. In the country, we have about 553 people, or 553,000 people who are homeless. And in our prisons, there are about 380,000 people there with SMI, serious mental illness. And I wanna make it really clear, these people are not there because they are criminals. They are there because perhaps they became homeless and they were untreated and the voices took over and they ended up committing a crime. Or maybe they stole something because they needed some food to survive. Or more commonly, what really happens that we hear from families all the time from across the country is a family actually helps to take care of somebody catches them at that right moment when they're dangerous to themselves or others, finds a bed, gets the person admitted to a hospital while they're in a psychiatric crisis. But before they get stabilized, that person acts out and assaults a staff member. And the hospital, rather than institute better safety practices and treating that person for their mental illness, no, they have them arrested for the sin of having something wrong within their brain and being sick. And so they go to jail and prison. And that is a horrible thing. And this graph does a nice job of showing over the years as we emptied out our mental health institutions, we simply relocated to fill up our jails and prisons. So the atrocities never ended, we moved them. They've moved onto our streets with about 140,000 people estimated to be homeless that have serious mental illnesses. And between our jails and our prisons, there's about 392,000 people there with serious mental illnesses. And the other places people end up is in our graveyards. And I always like to point out this graveyard here. This is from a mental health institution in New York State. Please notice that they have those grave markers with numbers instead of names. The very sad reason for that is they were trying to protect the, re the reputation of the families by not having the family name on a grave marker. And I'm here to tell you, I'm not ashamed of my son. He's sick, <laughs> just as if somebody had cancer. There's no reason for us to be having our reputations protected. And we don't propose that we want everybody to go back into an institution nor do we believe that everybody can be okay in the community. What we do work on is trying to make improvements along the whole continuum of care. And that's important because some people that have a mental illness are a lot less sick and a lot more functional than others, right? The other thing is that mental illnesses are chronic and they're episodic. So sometimes what somebody needs is maybe just a little bit of community support in an apartment and they can do just fine. I know a lot of people that function at a very high level, but there's also the other end of the spectrum, people that truly do need 24 seven care to be able to stay healthy and out of psychosis and doing well. But the thing is, is that 24 seven care doesn't have to be in the horrible long-term facilities of the past, right? We don't ever propose that we go back to that situation. And we've been all across the state of Iowa. We have seen a lot of facilities and I'm pleased to tell you, I've never seen anything as bad as this picture. I've seen a lot of drawings like that, but I've never seen anything quite as scary as that. But I've also hardly seen anything as nice as this picture on the right. And for that, as a society, we should be ashamed of. I will say there's a couple of new facilities that have just opened up, one in Clive and one in Bettendorf that is nicer and newer. And I'm very pleased to see that, but those are private facilities, not the state facilities. And here's what I dream of. I dream if I were to win the lottery, I would drive over to Des Moines and meet with Governor Reynolds and say, I'll give you all this money if you'll let me go up to the MHI and Independence and create a psychiatric assisted living campus. 
because I don't know if any of you have ever seen the MHI. It looks like a big college campus. It is huge. It is beautiful. And there's buildings that are mostly sitting unused and we could take that and renovate it. And we could have acute care units for people that are first presenting with their first psychosis. We could institute first episode psychosis education programs to teach the patient and their families about what's going on and help them learn how to manage that in the long run. We could have subacute care units. We could have independent living apartments and group homes. We could have a cafe where people could begin to work again with support. We could have a gym, we could have gardens. These could be places that we could be proud to fund, proud to volunteer at, proud to work at, proud to take a family member, proud to go ourselves to seek care. And why do I believe this is possible? Because we already do this for our elderly who have a different kind of brain illness. We do this for elderly with dementia and Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. We recognize that sometimes our elderly relatives need more assistance. We have figured it out for them. So I cannot imagine why we couldn't figure this out for our adult children with a different kind of brain illness. That's my dream. Now back to the law that we changed. Previously, in order for a judge to write a uh, commitment, an outpatient commitment for treatment, a person had to be a danger to themselves or others. So at that time, not many judges were willing to sign that because if somebody was a danger to themselves or others, they really belonged in the hospital with an inpatient commitment. So we had it changed so that a judge could write an order for outpatient treatment for someone's mental illness if a person had been repeatedly hospitalized or repeatedly arrested or incarcerated due to going off their medications while an outpatient. So the history of the revolving door is what can generate an outpatient commitment order. And that's already in effect. It's been in effect since July 1st of 2018, which is really wonderful. But to truly make it effective, what really helps are assisted outpatient treatment programs that are run in conjunction with a civil mental health court. These have been going on in other states across the country, like New York, for over 20 years with Kendra's Law, and they're highly effective at reducing hospitalizations, arrests, costs. And what they know is that if you can keep somebody in treatment and on their medications for 12 to 18 months, about 90% of them make the connection between staying on their meds and staying out of the hospital. And then they become more independently compliant with their treatment, which is really helpful. So three years ago, we began the work of trying to find local stakeholders to engage with to form an assisted outpatient treatment program here in the sixth judicial district. Um, and this was a picture from our very first meeting. Ellie Gould, who's our Johnson County jail diversion officer here in the lower front left row here, um, is the official leader of this team. Um, my husband and I are kind of the family advocate nudgers um, <laughs> to kind of get this thing moving along. And now we have a much larger team than this. We have people from Abbey Community Health. We have Prelude for substance use treatment. We have the VA hospital, the university hospital, the impact program. Um, you see somebody here from the East Central Region, MHDS region, Mary Issa, of course, with NAMI. We have Katie Gerlach from the Shelter House, Lynn uh, Rose, who's from the County Attorney's Office. And we're really making some really good progress at getting this going. And we want to open up a civil mental health court to um, work with this because there's already five criminal mental health courts and those are wonderful and they're really getting similar findings. But we wanna intercede and provide this level of collaborative team work with a patient sooner. We wanna help that person to be healthier sooner before they get so sick that they intersect with the criminal justice system. So that's what we're working on currently. Now there's also federal level policies that we need to improve on. And so some of the past two years, my husband and I really made a concerted effort to um, interact with all of the presidential candidates that were coming through Iowa because we happen to be the first in the nation, right? Before the caucuses. So we did a huge amount of advocating with all of the candidates. And the beauty of that is many of them are current sitting US senators and representatives. We have the vice president who came out with an amazing mental health plan that we had a lot of input on. 
So we're working at the federal level as well. And Senator Cory Booker is working with us on some bills right now, which is really hopeful. Um, so we're hoping for some federal policy solutions as well. And there's a lot of solutions. We could end that uh, legal discrimination, the IMD exclusion. We can increase reimbursement rates for mental health professionals and direct care staff and services because most of our mental health agencies are working and functioning at a level that is not very fiscally sound. They, uh, some of the things like um, people that have ACT teams that come out to help stay on their medications, they get reimbursed in addition by the MHDS regions because the MCOs don't pay them enough to have a, a working wage. And that's ridiculous. We just need to make the MCOs pay a higher rate. So we're advocating for that um, strongly at the state capitol. We need to modify HIPAA so that families can be more reasonably engaged with, with a treatment provision. We know that collaborative care works better. Um, we, I want to see us federalize improved commitment laws all across the, the country because it's ridiculous that we have 50 different states with 50 teams of people trying to constantly do this. We want to fund AOT programs. We want to allow HUD to subsidize supportive community living all along the continuum of care. We want loan forgiveness for mental health professionals, for rural areas especially, expand medical and mental health professional programs, and fund uh, certified community behavioral health centers. That's a really good way to allow them to be able to expand their services and close treatment gaps. And I want to briefly touch on NAMI because NAMI, oh, I love NAMI. It's the National Alliance on Mental Illness, and it's a grassroots organization that was started by a couple of moms sitting around a kitchen table in Wisconsin who had children with schizophrenia. But it's now a national um, organization, one of the largest ones. And it is a nonprofit, and we really do primarily rely on contributions and volunteers for the services that we provide to people for free. Um, and we always like to make sure that we educate people that mental illnesses are simply a medical condition of the brain, just like diabetes is a medical condition of the pancreas. And who is affected? One in five adults experience a mental illness. And actually, I think now we're seeing it's one in four during the pandemic. One in 25 live with a serious mental illness. So in the country, it's estimated that there's 10 to 12 million people living with serious mental illness, depending upon who you get your stats from. And we know that about one half of all chronic mental illness begins by the age of 14, but people that develop serious brain disorders, most often those come on in the late teens and early 20s. And we always like to emphasize that brain disorders are not the fault of the individual or the family. They're not a weakness, they're not a flaw, and they are not untreatable. We just need to allow the system to work to help the person to stay in treatment and do better. We like to encourage kind language and not using words like freak and psycho. Um, we try to use person first language and say John has schizophrenia, not John is schizophrenic. And I already touched on the people who are treated are no more dangerous than others. And there's lots of different kinds of mental illnesses. And usually when I show this slide, what I ask people to think about is if they know somebody in their life, whether it's a family member, a coworker, neighbor, somebody from your church, almost always everybody knows somebody who's living with one of these kind of illnesses. And NAMI provides a lot of wonderful programs. We have a peer support group that runs every Tuesday evening and currently it's running via Zoom because of the pandemic. Um, we also have a peer-to-peer -peer educational class, which is taught by people who live with mental illness that have been trained by NAMI to teach their peers. Um, and we have one of those classes going on. Uh, currently, I got to step in and speak with them a little bit last night. Um, it was nice to see this big group of people. Um, we have a family support group that runs every Thursday evening, again, via Zoom currently. And we have a family-to-family -family class that I touched on. We also do ending the silence to go out and speak in schools to help get young people informed about mental illnesses so that they can seek help for themselves or for friends. Um, we teach people how to give presentations and we do provide provider education as well, which is one of my favorite programs. And we have our NAMI Our Place Peer Recovery Center, which is a drop-in center. And normally it's open Monday through Saturday. During the pandemic, they are functioning primarily virtually by calling our clients. 
um, but we run a lot of educational classes and connect people to services there. And it can also just be a quiet, welcoming space for somebody to go and sit quietly in a place where they feel safe. And our offices are located there at 702 South Gilbert Street. And Mary Issa, I believe, is on this Zoom meeting tonight. And she, if you talk to somebody in NAMI in, in Johnson County and you talk about NAMI, she's who most people picture. She is our wonderful executive director. And she is very much the person that you would reach out to if you wanted to find out any further information. And I always like to share what people in the community can do to help somebody with struggling with a mental illness. And my response is always just first be kind. We never regret being kind to somebody, even if we don't know exactly what's going on. Reach out and invite folks to include them. Listen without judgment and don't feel like you need to solve the problem. Just keep space with the person. And suicide prevention is something I always like to include as well because our son was um, suicidal many, many times, but not one mental health professional gave us any advice about how to prevent his suicide. And I'm here to tell you the number one means of preventing a suicide is to remove the means of that suicide. If it's a family that has a gun in the house and somebody's suicidal, you need to get the gun locked up. You need to give it away to uh, another family for a period of time, put it in a locked container. You keep the key, both families are safe. And the reason I say that is if a gun is used to try to commit or to try to um, do a suicide, it is lethal 90% of the time. Other means of suicide are not as lethal. But in our family, it meant locking up knives, utensils, um, uh, even things as pens and pencils and plastic, plastic bags, um, removing whatever means there would be, we would lock away. Um, human connection is one of the biggest things that really helps to prevent this. There's been a study that showed that if somebody missed an appointment and the provider or somebody from the provider's office sent an email or did a phone call or, or sent a letter to follow up and say, hey, you didn't make your appointment, that act alone reduced suicides. So to me, that means every one of us can be working on reaching out to people that we know. And this is my closing slide. Um, this is a drawing that our son drew about two years into his schizoaffective um, diagnosis. This is 2015, and he still didn't have the right combination of medications to treat that. And he was really suffering from a lot of side effects of one of the gold standard drugs um, that works for a lot of people with schizophrenia. And he was having grand mal seizures, tremors, inability to swallow solid food. He was vomiting, he was drooling, he was incontinent, and it still wasn't controlling his psychosis or his voices. And so he became suicidal again and was admitted. And a couple days later, there was a young woman a couple doors down in the psych unit who also suffered from voices like his. And these voices, they're horrible. They say things to them like, you need to dig out your eyes. You need to bang your head against the wall. You need to cause a tsunami and take out all the people on earth who don't have angel wings. You need to kill your mom and dad. And you'd see them walking down the hall, covering their ears saying, shut the blank up, shut the blank up. And so he sat down and drew this picture with messages to distract her from those voices. And one afternoon when I arrived to visit him at the psych unit, they were sitting down and coloring this together. And so I turned around and went back out and asked for permission to be let out of the locked unit. And I ran all the way to the parking garage, got my cell phone, hid it in my pocket, went back in, broke every rule and got a picture of this, pic of this picture that he was drawing because it was so meaningful. If you can see the words, there's things in there that he would hope for. Compassion, hope, peace, serenity, kindness. And this says a couple things to me. One is, if he could do that while he was that sick, we have to do everything we can to fix the broken system. And if one of us were to get diagnosed with cancer, or had a loved one get diagnosed with cancer, isn't this what we would hope for them? Compassion, kindness, and hope. So the ripples of hope came from this quote from a long time ago. 
And for those of you who are old enough to remember, he was talking about apartheid. That was the social injustice at that time. I think what's happening currently to people with mental illnesses in our country, especially the most sick, is our current humanitarian crisis that we need to fix. And with that, I'll stop. Thank you very much, and I'll open it up to any questions. Hey, Leslie, this is Roger um, with Successful Living. I was curious, what is your, uh, you mentioned that you're um, a, um, a lobbyist. So what is your, your focus? I mean, it seems obvious, but I think uh, maybe we'd like to highlight what the specifics are. So it's very much about bills that are running to affect people with mental illnesses. So um, I'm advocating for several bills that will help like the ones that are running to get parity for telehealth. Um, there's one to have Iowa apply for the IMD waiver that's available. Um, and there's um, a bill that's running to um, provide funding for specialty courts. I'm obviously advocating for that. I'm also advocating a little bit more indirectly, but working with the uh, Justice System Appropriations Committee, trying to educate them about the need to go ahead and fund for the increase in the judicial budget because um, they are asking for 25 additional judges. And here in the sixth judicial uh, district, we really can't get a judge to help us out with a mental health court because they're short by two and a half judges. So I'm working to try to help get more judges. And you know, there's no guarantee that if we get more judges that any will be assigned to our district, but I'm still working on trying to get that to happen um, because without judges, we're not gonna get it to happen. So um, various things like that. I'm also working against some bills. Um, there's a gun bill right now that they're making, um, they're trying to pass to have the um, permitless carry, which means it would get rid of the state's background checks before somebody purchases a gun. I find that frightening personally because that could mean that somebody like my son could get a gun. Whereas with the background checks, they would find out that he'd had an adjudication that he had to be admitted because of his mental illness. So lots of different bills in different ways, okay. but primarily that focus. And I appreciate you mentioned the uh, increasing the rates for services. That's a biggie for us too. Yes, yeah. Yeah, and so a, a lot of time is spent working specifically with legislators on certain committees for certain bills, but I also do general work and talk with them on all the state solutions as well. Thank you for all the work you do. Thank you. Leslie, this is Heidi Pierce. Thank you so much for your presentation. This was very interesting and my heart goes out to you and your family. I really appreciate all the work you do. Uh, I just wondered if any funds have been appropriated to, you know, passing this bill for, you know, the outpatient treatment and all that. It's not going to happen if they don't give us money for it. Right. Not yet. Um, but we're uh, strongly working on it. Um, and I'm also hoping that we might be able to get some funding through our MHDS region, honestly, because it is a core service just being provided in a more coordinated fashion. Um, but so far we have not been successful with that, but we're still working on it as a team to see if we can get some funding that way as well. So we're not going to give up, Heidi. And I just wondered too, if you have a suggestion for something that maybe those of us that don't have um, the resources to commit to a long-term commitment, is there kind of a one and done writing a letter to a specific person or just one thing that we could all leave here today with that we can take a few minutes to do to help your cause? <laughs> sure. Um, one thing is think about joining our NAMI walk um, that is going on on May 22nd this spring. That's something everybody could participate in. And I know many people on this call already do. Like Roger, I recognize you from Successful Living. Um, and um, the other thing is if you wanted to advocate on a specific bill to help get funding for the AOT, you could write to Representative Bobby Kaufman, who is the chair of the House State Government Committee. Um, that's where a bill that's SF363, um, it has been presented to his committee. It's already passed through the Senate and I'm hoping that he will get that bill scheduled for a subcommittee meeting so it has a chance of moving forward. So if everybody wanted to write to Representative Bobby Kaufman and encourage him to um, schedule a subcommittee meeting for that bill, that would be wonderful. 
We would welcome the help. Joe, did you have your hand up? There you go. Yes, um, I'm uh, interested in uh, uh, knowing how you can work with uh, BIPOC, Black, Indigenous, uh, people of color, uh, because uh, as you know, I'm sure, uh, they're more afflicted with, uh, with, these, uh, with these problems, but are often uh, way un underrepresented in uh, getting attention and, and uh, help. Yeah, that is actually a goal um, that we've had for some time at NAMI Johnson County to be able to reach uh, many more diverse communities. And it's not always easy. Um, I will tell you that I have gone and attended many events like over the summer when they were having those um, listening sessions um, with the city council. Um, I attended them and, and worked around in the background, taking my card around to people that were representing different um, communities um, and shared information about NAMI, invited them to think about coming to some of our meetings. Um, and it's, it's a continued goal because it's not easy breaking down that door. Um, and it, we welcome any suggestions um, because it is difficult to force them to come. Um, but we know they would benefit from many of the different programs that we provide. And I would encourage you to uh, see if you have some way of helping the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, uh, which is having a lot of troubles. Okay. I will look into that. I don't know a huge amount about that. I'll be perfectly honest about my ignorance of that but perhaps Stephanie can fill me in later. Leslie, you said you might want some recommendations. This is Heidi again, and I just wanted to say that um, I don't work with adults, but I'm on the Iowa City Community School District's Equity Advisory Committee, and we're working on trying to dismantle the school to prison pipeline. We're looking at how race and mental health interact and that intersection between race and mental health and how that puts a child at such high risk for punitive and exclusionary discipline, um, restraint and seclusion. And so I'm going to be co-hosting with two other presenters a seminar on this topic in mid-April through the Iowa City Community School District. And it will be open to both staff and parents, so really any adult. So I can get that information to you. I would love that. Wonderful. And just so you know, one of the bills that passed last year, I was advocating against because it was a school to prison pipeline bill. So I was working on it. Just maybe nobody would ever know that. Thank you, Leslie. You're welcome. Any other questions? Thank you, Leslie. That's a good Good and excellent presentation. Oh, thank you. Leslie, I don't know this might be a good opportunity to plug the NAMI on the Hill. <laughs> yes, that's true. NAMI Day on the Hill is happening next Wednesday. And if anybody wanted to have any further information about that, you can simply go to NAMI Iowa. Um, it, you could Google NAMI Iowa and right on their website, I believe they have information about signing up for Day on the Hill. Um, it's a wonderful way. It's, it's a virtual uh, advocacy effort this year because of the pandemic. Um, and I believe it's like a half day program on the first day where they teach people how to do this work to how to advocate with state legislatures. And they do a really good job of that. And that's definitely where I started was when I went to the first NAMI day on the hill. I think it was probably in 2016 if my memory serves. And it was extremely helpful because obviously before that I had never been over there had no idea what to even do or what to say or how to how to do it so they do a good primer on it I'll um, second that too that I thought the uh, the primer as you call it the three hours was very very helpful and valuable in getting people to uh, especially from anybody who's never been at the Capitol or done this it's very worthwhile so that's Tuesday I think nine at noon I recall Okay. Very good. And I see that Mary Isa posted the link to that in the chat. So thank you, Mary. You're always on, got my back and I appreciate that very much. 
Any other questions? Well, if there's no further questions, I would first like us all to just recognize the excellent presentation that um, Leslie did this evening. It was very informative. It was recorded. Um, I'm not sure how quick um, the communications department turns around the videos, but um, if you're having trouble locating it, um, I would say just give them about uh, a week to, to probably get that um, up and running on the YouTube and on the city website. I also, um, you know, we, we had great engagement, great conversation, possibly inviting Leslie back to do this again, maybe during the, the day, um, you know, maybe we could get even more engagement from the community. But if anybody has any thoughts in terms of um, redoing this program again, in terms of the time that we offer it, if you could reach out to me and just let me know, because I, I really feel like this um, needs to be heard by a lot more than the 16 of us on the, the um, Zoom tonight. So um, please let me know. But again, Leslie, thank you. Thank you very, very much. Very much appreciated. Thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity to reach at least 16 of you. So thank you. I agree. Definitely worth it. All right. Okay. Take care, everybody. Good night. Good night. Good night.